Hi, it's Greg Dalton. I'd like to hear your comments on the show, topics we should cover, and guest suggestions. You can reach me at greg at climateone.org. This is Climate One. I'm Greg Dalton. Western law generally treats the natural environment as property, with all rights resting with its owners. So if we're treating the earth and if we're treating ecosystems as property, then ultimately we as property owners have the right to destroy our property. And that fundamentally has to change. If corporations can be legal persons, why can't Mother Earth? And who should defend the rights of our collective natural resources? What are the rights and responsibilities of individual owners versus the government's obligation to preserve those resources or at least some decent quality of the resource because we all rely on that. We can't live without water or air. Can a forest or river have legal rights of its own? In the last several years, a growing number of countries and places within the U.S. have tried to establish legal standing for natural ecosystems. In 2017, New Zealand granted the Waganui River the full legal rights of a person. India also granted full legal rights to the Ganges and Yamuna rivers and recognized that the Himalayan glaciers have a right to exist. In the United States, those efforts have been more complicated and frequently overturned by the courts. I invited two guests to talk through the history and complexities of the rights of nature. Lindsay Schroman Warren is an attorney who's worked with the Community Environmental Legal Defense Fund on multiple rights of nature efforts. His clients have included the Lake Erie ecosystem and the Crystal Springs ecosystem. Rebecca Sosi is a Regents professor at the University of Arizona College of Law. Sosi is of Yaqui descent and faculty co-chair of the university's Indigenous Peoples Law and Policy Program. I asked Rebecca Sosi how her thinking about the rights of nature has evolved over time. She says it wasn't something she thought much about until she started studying law. Law school was actually a happy accident for me. There wasn't anybody in my family that had ever gone to university or law school. Um, and when I got into my field, which is federal Indian law and the rights of indigenous peoples, I was so taken with the rights discourse and this idea of human rights and civil rights, that became one of the cornerstones for my scholarship. So I have since learned to appreciate the discourse of rights in general, and the rights of nature, of course, is, is a part of that discourse. But I think it's a stretch for the American imagination to go into the rights of nature, because we usually associate them with persons. Right, right. We'll get into kind of the common roots. The very existence of a human, uh, you know, initiates some rights and the very existence of uh, nature kind of uh, spawns some rights, so to speak. So, but how do you explain the rights of nature as a concept? So the concept really posits that the way that we envision a person having particular rights and standing to sue in case somebody harms you that that can be extended beyond human persons to aspects of what we would describe as the natural world, an ecosystem, a river, a mountaintop, a national park, whatever the case may be. Uh, so it, it is to have an entity with standing to sue. Now, it's not such a stretch because we actually do obviously think of corporations as legal persons and we think of, well, you know, a ship can be a legal person. So, so we do have these categories in the law of inanimate objects that can have personhood in the legal sense. Well, isn't the right of a corporation to as personhood relatively new? I always remember uh, you know, Stephen Colbert saying that I'll believe a corporation is a person when Texas executes one, uh, right? Isn't that relatively new? No, actually the, the legal status is the collective acting as an individual. So the way that corporations are set up is as an individual legal entity with mm -hmm. status. And obviously the individual shareholders are part of that. So we have a group that is represented by that legal identity. Hmm. Now, I think okay. The, okay. the novel twist in the modern era has been to think of what we you know, term the, the rights that are, you know, core to individuals, freedom of speech, freedom of religion. And all of a sudden you extend those rights to corporations. Well, that's different 
than the types of legal status rights that go with a property or contract transaction. So it is that part that is newer in the jurisprudence. Right. From recently, uh, Citizens United or whatever. Yes. Lindsay, how did you come to be interested in the rights of nature? As an undergraduate student, I was an environmental studies major, and that often focuses on environment, economy, and um, society. And we didn't really get into the structure of the law and how it shapes the way that we think about the natural world or about ecosystems or, or the planet in general. In my 20s, I taught field science education, and um, I you know, we would teach students uh, definition of ecosystems about the, it's all the parts of the living and non-living world. Sometimes I'd have a student, always an indigenous student, who would say, what do you mean non-living parts of the natural world? Hmm. And I'd be like, I know what you mean. Just if you're asked this on, you know, the Washington State standardized tests, you know, just put that down, but you don't have to believe it, you know? <laughs> And I found myself wanting to do more structural social change work. So I ended up going to law school because I was like, well, if I want to change the system, I better know what the system is. And found that I was going to go to Spokane, where uh, the Community Environmental Legal Defense Fund had been doing some work in the previous year or so. So I, I signed up for uh, the democracy school. You know, I was exposed to this idea of rights of nature and um, you know, kind of the the structure of law that gives corporations more power than people. Uh, and our ability to protect our communities as well. Uh, and I was very skeptical. I mean, I was a science educator, right? So skepticism. And I'm like, this can't be how we've structured our legal system. And I mean, you know, no spoiler alerts, but like you don't cover this stuff in law school. Um, the whole first year of law school is really about reasonableness. It's not about justice. And so my first summer of law school, I worked on um, a signature gathering campaign to put an initiative onto the Spokane City Charter, like the constitution for the city. And it included rights of nature for the Spokane River. And at one point, I'm outside a grocery store and um, you know, I'm, I'm standing there collecting signatures. And I think for context, I'm a white guy with you know, white skin privilege. And this woman who appeared to be indigenous is walking into the store and I say, hey, would you like to sign this initiative to, uh, to give the Spokane River the right to exist? And she stops and she looks at me and she says, you're finally figuring that out. Mm, mm, yeah. Yeah. Finally figuring that out. Boy, what, so how did you feel in that moment? Did you just kind of drop, feel shamed or chagrined or how did? Well, she signed it. <laughs> <laughs> no, I mean, yeah, I, it's, it's this thing. We're finally figuring this out. You know, in Western legal systems, Western thought is really slow to this. And so we have to unpack hundreds of years of the way that we think about our relationship to the earth in order to get to this paradigm shift that rights of nature represents. You know, another, an, another time that summer, I was, I was gathering signatures at a festival and this guy comes up and really wants to read the, the text of, of the entire thing. So I let him read it. And then he comes back and he points at the rights of river provision. And he says, you know, this goes against 500 years of Western property law. And I pause and I think, is it only 500 years or is it further? But I just say yes, and he's like, I'm glad because that is what we have to do. And he then shares that he's a lawyer and he remembers that first day of property law class when the professor explains what property is. And it includes things like the right to use your property, the right to transact your property, the right to exclude others from using your property. Uh, and ultimately, it includes the right to destroy your property. So if we're treating the earth and if we're treating ecosystems as property, then ultimately we as property owners have the right to destroy our property. And that fundamentally has to change. Rebecca, what did you learn about property laws in law school and coming in with your perspective? I think Lindsay's absolutely right that that is how the American legal system works. We inherited it from Great Britain and Blackstone's version of property was one of absolute despotic ownership. The owner could do anything. And so we imported that into the United States. Uh, but the interesting thing is, in the context of this conversation, to imagine what the rights are to what we are framing in U.S. law and, and international law as resources. 
water resources, air resources, wetlands resources, species, animals, plants, resources. What are the rights and responsibilities of individual owners versus the government's obligation to preserve those resources or at least some decent quality of the resource because we all rely on that. We can't live without water or air. So what is the government's obligation and how do we frame that as against this absolute notion of property rights? So we have mass movements now around public lands, for example, on both sides of that equation that the government ought to protect these lands for the collective benefit. The controversy over Bears Ears National Monument, for example, um, you know, local, you know, people there said, well, hey, you know, we we want to be able to develop that. We want to be able to engage in fracking and we can lease these lands and we can make money off of them and the whole commodification thing versus the value of that place is immeasurable as it sits there as the site of all of those affiliated indigenous nations that have always been part of that place. And that was the beauty of the proclamation that President Obama established because he said, these are current living nations. They've always been here. The knowledge about that place is invaluable and they will have a seat at the table with the federal agencies in a co-management regime of something that is precious as a national resource. And I think that you saw that, for example, in the climate litigation, the, the Juliana case, that idea that there's an atmospheric trust that one generation doesn't have the right to take away the right of the future generations to survive. And that is a pivotal concept that within many indigenous traditions, and I know Orin Lines of the Haudenosaunee has spoken about this, the seventh generation, that that is the frame of your thinking as a current people. You think for the seventh generation and you plan and you protect and you preserve and you act in ways that are in that way sustainable. And that's very different than capitalism that's driven by quarterly profits and quarterly earnings and very short-term uh, outlook. I've learned a lot as a you know uh, as uh, Lindsay said earlier about you know pr the white privilege he he walks around with. I've learned a lot about mine and the holes in my education and and um, I think a lot of Americans don't realize that tribes are sovereign nations. So how does tribal law and U.S. law interact when it comes to the rights of nature cases? So that is my specialty, federal Indian law. And we have 574 federally recognized indigenous nations within this country. And we also have many indigenous peoples that lack that level of federal recognition. For example, Native Hawaiian people are definitely indigenous. They were part of the kingdom of Hawaii before it was unjustly taken, but they don't have that status. And similarly, there are other uh, nations, for example, Louisiana, encountering climate change there on their ancestral homelands, but they lack the political status to actually have standing in terms of their land rights. So you're right, the, the sovereignty of American Indian and Alaska Native nations is a territorial sovereignty. It stems from their status since time immemorial as separate nations. They engaged in treaties with Great Britain, also with the United States, you have to have a separate political status to engage in a treaty relationship. And it is that that has become domesticated as this domestic dependent nation status. But reservation lands are not part of the states where they are. They are separate jurisdictional enclaves. Tribal governments exercise judicial legislative, executive powers on their lands and over their members. And that is the relationship that sustains them in these claims to ancestral homelands that are now on different lands, right? So there are a panoply of rights that go with that political status. For other indigenous peoples, as well as the federally recognized tribes, the language of human rights ensures that there is a consistency 
for national governments to recognize the unique status of indigenous peoples, whether or not the, the government has crafted a special political status for them. They have human rights to land, ancestral territories. And the articles in the Declaration also talk about spiritual rights. That is not the same as religious rights. Spiritual rights are a different metaphysics that attaches land and people through time, ancestors and future generations. So that metaphysics is built into indigenous human rights. And that is what we are protecting in some sense with this conversation about the rights of nature, knowing that indigenous peoples are the traditional custodian stewards of the lands that they have been on since time immemorial. You're listening to a Climate One conversation about the rights of nature with lawyers Rebecca Tsosi and Lindsay Schroman Warren. Coming up, we dig into the nuances of this legal framework and talk about some of the places where these arguments have been put into action. You know, a legal person usually has the right to sue and be sued to own property and to contract with others. Should ecosystems have that same set of personhood rights, or should it be different? That's up next when Climate One continues. Today, we're talking about the rights of nature with Rebecca Tsosi, a Regents Professor of Law at the University of Arizona, and Lindsay Schroman Warren, a lawyer who has worked with the Community Environmental Legal Defense Fund. I asked Lindsay Schroman Warren to respond to the argument that nature already has rights, as exemplified by energy companies frustrated by a threatened desert tortoise that holds up construction of solar farms. Our legal system really treats everyone and everything as either person or property. And so what the government is doing with those regulatory environmental laws is trying to regulate the use of property. Just because somebody has property doesn't mean they can use it in, in every way they want. So kind of the, the bargain that was made with setting up the, the current environmental law system was to make environmental law a subset of property law and say, okay, you can use your property up to this point. Uh, you can use it um, only this much. Uh, there, are, there are gonna be limits to pollution. There are gonna be limits to destroying all the habitat for the desert tortoise. And what we're thinking about with rights of nature is, is actually moving how we treat the earth from the property law sphere to the, the constitutional law sphere, where we're talking more about this is a thing um, or a legal person that has rights. So uh, in, in constitutional law, we're often talking about structures of government and power, but we're also talking about who has rights and thus duties. Um, and so it's, it's categorically changing the nature of ecosystems uh, within the law from being something that's legal property to a legal person. And everything else kind of flows from there. Um, you know, the, the analogy in our history, and, and I think this is a sensitive analogy to make, so I'm just making it in the legal context, is uh, emancipation of slavery, um, the end of slavery, in that human beings who were considered under the law to be property are now legal persons. Uh, essentially, the concept of rights of nature is talking about a similar transformation conceptually with ecosystems. Right, so that's happening all over the over the world, um, Rebecca. This concept, which noted, started about fifty years ago with this law professor from USC, who, at least in the United States, it is spreading around the world. Give us a sense of the scope of where this is gaining traction internationally. How many jurisdictions? How many countries? Because this really is an international movement from New Zealand to Bolivia to where else? So it is definitely gaining traction. A lot of the countries in Latin America did formulate that as a constitutional provision that the earth has rights. Now, it sounds good in the abstract, but there are still resources embedded within there. There are, you know, oil and gas deposits, and there are indigenous peoples that live on those lands. Even if you recognize that the earth has rights, humans will still use the earth for their purposes. And those, you know, considerations that we just spoke of in terms of indigenous human rights are still very, very much implicated in many of those countries. New Zealand, I think, set a great standard. The Maori people have a treaty 
they're they're they are tribal nations, but they have uh, one treaty, the Treaty of Waitangi, and that treaty process is still ongoing. And they actually have been successful in getting the New Zealand Parliament to legally grant personhood to now three natural features. The river was the first. And there's a Maori term for that, which I won't try to read, but the river is a legal person and has all the rights, powers, duties, and liabilities of a legal person. Now, if you listen to that, yes, it has powers and duties. It also has obligations, liabilities. And my understanding was that India, when it it termed that Ganges River was also a person, but then it overflowed and flooded and had lots of liabilities. And so anytime you're talking about legal personhood, there's there's a kind of a pro and a con to that, you know, because you sue and you can be sued. So who is the guardian in a human sense of these these entities is the interesting question. Lindsay? Oh, there's so much to unpack here. It's so exciting. And this is where we're at right now with this idea is I think in the last couple of years, we've moved beyond uh, this, what I'll call an initial phase of rights of nature, which is, uh, in Christopher Stone's words, the unthinkable. What do you mean like that we ecosystems could have rights? That's just impossible. We can't think of that. To now actually being in the phase where we're talking about the details of it, like how would this actually work? What are the legal mechanisms by which which this works? We have a number of examples worldwide to look at. In this second phase, uh, I think there's some really important things for us to consider and and how we approach the particular mechanisms for rights of nature is going to determine whether it actually works as a paradigm shift or simply recuperates a system that is ultimately uh, destroying the earth on which we depend. Um, and my hope is that we we create a paradigm shift and get the world we want in this second phase uh, one of the issues to consider is this question of liability. You know, when we deconstruct what a person is in the law, uh, you know, even before we get to you know constitutional rights, there's some basic things. It's you know a legal person usually has the right to sue and be sued, to own property and to contract with others. Should ecosystems have that same set of personhood rights, or should it be different? Uh, and I, I think that we should be very careful about the idea of ecosystems being able to be sued or being able to have liability. And that's one of the things that, that could derail, in my opinion, the ability for rights of nature to be a um, check on destructive activities and instead could set up you know, kind of like natural resource trustees for ecosystems where there's a flood and now the ecosystem has to pay out of the fund that would have otherwise have gone to restoring habitat that had been destroyed. But that, Lindsay, if I could jump in there, that, that sounds like uh, there's the that position means that ecosystems have the benefits of personhood, but not the liabilities or not the responsibilities. They want the good without the without the other side of the ledger, right? And that sounds like imbalanced, right? Well, the imbalance is in our system now where you know we are doing a one-way path of, of taking ecosystems and turning them into money uh, and we have no way to to go back but but yeah I mean I, I and you know children are kind of similar you know there, there's this whole fun conversation you have in contracts class about can children contract do they have the capacity to contract? Um, they have they have protections without certain responsibilities. I want to move to um, you know uh, in 2019 the Lake Erie Bill of Rights was passed in the city of Toledo with 61 percent of the vote. But then a year later, a single federal judge struck it down. Uh, Lindsay, you were one of the lawyers involved in that. Was that a win or a loss? What does that mean? And that was pretty significant, I think. Um, and you know, were people trying people in Ohio voting to give lake rights? Yeah. So I think the Lake Erie Bill of Rights, at least in the U.S. context, uh, was one of those watershed moments, no pun intended, for this concept of rights of nature uh, in the popular understanding. So as far as the court case went, uh, you know, the people of Toledo voted to add rights protections to Lake Erie and its watersheds. Uh, the significant one for Toledo is the Maumee River, which is the largest river 
to flow into Lake Erie, and it brings a lot of contamination from factory farms upstream. And that's what's causing the harmful algal blooms in Lake Erie that shut down the Toledo water system for three days several years ago. Basically, the, the Farm Bureau um, sued uh, the city of Toledo, and the court said Toledo doesn't have the authority to pass this law, and uh, therefore avoided the law. Um, so on a legal technical aspect, uh, the law is no longer in effect. I would say on the larger cultural uh, transition that we're making this idea of needing a paradigm shift in the law, I think the campaign and what people did in Lake Erie was, was highly successful. We might not be having this conversation now if they had not said, we can't live with the system as it is, and we need a different system that recognizes our ability. I'm talking with lawyers Lindsay Sherman-Warren and Rebecca Tsosi about the rights of nature. We'll continue our conversation later in the show. But first, we'll hear a personal story of someone who used the rights of nature to defend her home ecosystem. Carol Van Strum and her family moved to the coast of Oregon in the 1970s. She didn't know then that she would end up leading a fight to protect those lands from clear-cutting and herbicide spraying. Van Strum says it all started in the spring of 1975. My kids were down by the river, which runs, well, it's through our property, but it's on the edge of it, and the road runs along the river. And they were down there fishing and playing, and a spray truck came along, and I don't think the guys on it saw the kids. They just were busy with their high-pressure hoses, spraying everything in sight, including the river itself. And... My kids got very, very sick that night. And uh, when we called mm. to find out what they were spraying, we were told it was perfectly safe, 2,4-D and 2,4-5-T, they're safe as table salt. And I said, well, could they have put the wrong thing in the truck? Maybe they made a mistake. And no, that's, they knew it was the right thing. And oh, within a few weeks after that, Helicopters were spraying the ridges around our place, which, of course, drifted immediately down onto our place, which is lower down, and, well, killed half the things in our garden. But also, a few weeks after that, all these, our poultry, the ducks and geese and chickens that were in eggs, they hatched. <laughs> and a lot of them, more than half of them, were deformed. They had wings on backwards, feet on backwards. Some had no wings, and they had mm. crossed beaks. And so we started researching what they were spraying and found out it was the same as what had been in Agent Orange that was used in Vietnam until a few years before that. And wrote a letter to the editor of our paper and found out when we got flooded by neighbors other people in the area who'd had similar experiences and nobody connected it necessarily with the spraying itself because they didn't know what was being sprayed. So that was the beginning. We ended sure. up with our neighbors suing the federal government and stopping the Forest Service from using the, one of the main ingredients in Agent Orange 245T. And and subsequent lawsuits stopped them from using any herbicides aerially in our forest. And finally, and that expanded to the national forests in the whole nation. Wow. quite! A, I just want to ask, how old were your kids and how sick did they get? Well, they, it ranged from, I think, age 7 to 13. And yeah, they got really sick, um, vomiting, bloody diarrhea. They had headaches. Um, it was pretty dramatic. And when we went down to the river the next day, <sighs> everything was dead. There were dead fish, dead merganser ducklings and crawdads floating, just washed up along the edge of the of the river. There was a there. There was very clear that something awful came through our place. Well, that's uh, quite a sad story to have Agent Orange sprayed on your kids and then to win uh, a lawsuit that has national implications. Um, 
What we're, we're talking in this episode is about the, the rights of nature. What does the rights of nature mean to you, having won this big battle such as you have? Well, it's more than just the spraying of poisons on our forests. It's the only reason they really need to do that is because of clear cutting. And that's one of the most devastating Oh, one of the most devastating things you can do to a forest. They clear cut it. It's basically strip mining. Everything is cut down to bare dirt. And then they want to plant a plantation of only commercially valuable Douglas fir. And then they continually spray off and on for the first five, six years to kill off anything that sprouts because nature replenishes itself. There's bare dirt and sunshine. It's going to grow things. And the timber industry considers those all to be weeds and sprays them with things that supposedly kill everything except the Douglas fir. So is this battle really over? Even though you seem to have won in court, but is the battle really over? No, it's not over because the only thing we won applied to federal lands, which in my county, my portion of the county is mostly Siusla National Forest. But in other parts of the county and Oregon and the Northwest, there's mostly timberland owned by multinational timber companies, and the, none of those ban the things we want in court applied to them. Only state regulations apply. So that was 40 years ago that we won those injunctions against the federal government. But the state government, which I'm sorry to say, is controlled largely by corporate money, has very favorable laws in place on pesticides so that the timber companies routinely spray and clear-cut vast areas of the forest. And what they're replacing is real forest. It's many species of trees and fungi and lichens and mosses and all the wildlife and other things that make up a real forest. And they're replacing it with plantations that might as well be corn because they're just one species. That's what we're fighting ultimately is the practice of clear cutting. And in your legal cases uh, that have banned the use of these uh, chemicals on federal lands, um, have you used a rights of nature legal framework to ban aerial spraying? No, not on federal lands. The only law we really could apply was NEPA, the National Environmental Policy Act. All that requires is that the government prepare environmental impact statements telling mm-hmm. the effects of what they're going to do, and they can go ahead and do it. But they hadn't done that in our cases originally. And then ultimately, um, in subsequent lawsuits, we were able to show as that the result of the research I did for my book, A Bitter Fog, was being able to show that all of the pesticides being used in the national forest, in fact, probably in the nation, were registered on the basis of non-existent or fraudulent data, safety data. And the court ruled and the Ninth Circuit agreed that the Forest Service can't use those chemicals relying on EPA registrations, which in turn rely on that false information. They would have to do their own research. And of course, the Forest Service couldn't do that. And that's why they ended up changing their policy on clear cutting so that they wouldn't have to use these poisons. But it's still allowed on private and corporate lands. That's right. And that's where the rights of nature came in was our county and our, this is 40 years after our battle with the feds, okay? A group formed in Lincoln County called Lincoln County Community Rights. And their goal was to stop the aerial spraying of pesticides on corporate timberlands. And they introduced a county measure that would ban it. And included in that measure was a rights of nature that gave anybody in the, anybody could speak in the courts in defense of natural systems. The voters in the county passed the measure. Immediately, the timber industry 
challenged it in court. And it was at that point that the community rights folks asked me if I would speak for the river system here in defense of that provision in the, in the, in the measure. And that's how I became the Lorax, speaking for the trees. I've never been so honored. I mean, to me, that was amazing that they chose me to do that. They actually found a Lorax costume. And at any kind of event in the county, like they have parades on, you know, Memorial Day or whatever, and they would parade as a group with the Lorax educating people about protecting our ecosystems from these poisons. So it was a wonderful thing. Such a powerful story. I read uh, the Lorax was Dr. Seuss's favorite book or one of his favorite books. It's so powerful. Carol Van Strum is author of A Bitter Fog, a farmer, parent, and self-described troublemaker in Lincoln County, Oregon. What, what does aerial spraying of forests have to do with climate change? Well, again, it goes back to clear cutting because the connection is kind of vivid. Um, because when you're old growth forests, real forests, multi species, like I said, store and sequester massive amounts of carbon and they're cutting them all down and replacing them with these plantations that are all one species. They don't only grow them for 30 or 40 years and then kind of mow them down to make paper or whatever they do with them. So they're, they're not storing, they're, they store far, far less carbon. And the huge amounts of energy required to do all that, ugh, talk about logging equipment, go take a look at some of it. It's massive and it uses huge amounts of fuel. It pumps out massive amounts of exhaust. It's amazing what it takes to destroy a forest. Timber companies have sued the county to try to nullify the ban that you helped get passed. On what grounds and what's the status of the case? They sued in 2017, right after the, soon after the measure passed. And uh, the judge sat on it for two and a half years. So for those two and a half years, nature had rights in our county, which I'm proud of. Mm. But finally, she issued her ruling and ruled that the state law allowing the poisoning of the forest was, it preempted any county control. It was interesting, though, in the he original hearing with that judge, she did not allow the river system via me and the Lorax um, to intervene against the timber companies. But she did give a little speech saying she thought she thought even though nature didn't have rights now, it should and will. Carol Van Strum is author of A Bitter Fog and is a farmer, parent, and self-described troublemaker in Lincoln County, Oregon. She's featured in a PBS documentary called The People vs. Agent Orange. Last year, the Oregon Supreme Court opted not to hear the Lincoln County case, upholding the trial court decision allowing for continued use of aerial pesticides and denying the ability of the Sillitz River watershed to be seen as a rightful party. Coming up, what does it mean to decolonize our thinking about the law? It is time for another paradigm shift because there is now an imperative with what is happening to our climate and our natural world, and it is our obligation to see that. To decolonize your thinking means to situate yourself in an interdependent universe. That's up next when Climate One continues. We're talking with lawyers Rebecca Tsosi and Lindsay Schroman-Warren about the legal rights of nature. In 2019, the city of Pittsburgh, Pennsylvania, passed an anti-fracking law that included the phrase, quote, natural communities and ecosystems possess unalienable and fundamental rights to exist and flourish. It also said residents shall possess legal standing to enforce those rights. I asked Rebecca Tsosi about the significance of that law. I think it is very significant, and it's it's an area that is highly contested right now. So the human rights sort of movement 
really encompasses the needs of local communities to a great extent, right? Because the community is vulnerable in ways that maybe the national government doesn't see when it enacts the Clean Air Act or the Clean Water Act. And then somebody has to enforce that. And But we got the the Flint, Michigan case, right? Somebody wasn't enforcing what they should have been enforcing. So local communities suffer from that. They get the lead right in their water. Or they get the pollutant. And fracking is is very, very damaging to many communities on several levels, human health and property damage. So the idea that the community should have a right to protect itself against these harms that is separate and independent from the pollution control ordinances is very important. But there's also a strand, Lindsay talked about the constitutional doctrines. So there are constitutional doctrines, both of standing, how you get into federal court to vindicate your federal rights, or how you get into state court to vindicate your state rights. But there are also issues where you're having a human rights violation occur, and those regimes do not recognize your standing to bring your claim. What do you do then? So those are the areas of constitutional law that still have to be adjudicated within the powers jurisprudence. Lindsay, in the corporate sustainability world, there's a big effort called ecosystem services to basically put a monetary value on the services that nature provides to people. You know, uh, a forest uh, cleans water that trickles down into a stream that benefits humans or perhaps perhaps a factory. And the idea is that if we, uh, for corporate, and this is a very corporate-centric view, that if something has an economic value on it, it can be measured, it, it, it can be protected. Uh, you know, a tree standing doesn't show up in the GDP, but a tree cut down and made into furniture or paper, you know, shows up in GDP. So if we assign an economic value to a tree providing shade and other ecosystem benefits, that's a good thing. Do you see that as a good thing, supporting the rights of nature or more um, exploitation and extraction? I, that is one of the questions that I'm trying to figure out because I, I totally see how, as you just described, if we don't give value to something and, and measure that value, our current system doesn't consider it to have any worth. And yet at the same time, that valuing is a form of commodification uh, and estrangement and alienation from things that are sacred or have value beyond their economic meaning and potentially the answer is we'll change the system but you know exactly how do we do that uh, you know to make a historical analogy a emancipation proclamation and, and the 13th amendment that ended slavery except as punishment for a crime didn't create justice for formerly enslaved people we are still wrestling with that today i mean 150 plus years later and so if we don't if we only say rights of nature and don't look at the the economic implications, the monetary design and monetary policy implications of our treatment of ecosystems. I don't think we're going to go all the way, and um, we we have to see the political, the rights based conversation as as tied together with economic. Rebecca, if we give more rights to nature, are the rights of people reduced or demoted? I would like to say that everybody will benefit if we have a system of value that is inclusive of human persons and other than human persons to use this frame. If we if we look at many indigenous languages, rocks, mountains, streams, they they are entities that have value and they are specific values. It's not that they're fungible. They each have their personality. They do what they do. Your job as a human being is to work with them in their essence. And that's what ensures sustainability over time. And those are the lessons embedded within what we now call traditional ecological knowledge, for example. But it's really a scientific system that says this is the way that the river operates. This is what happens when we have these cycles of drought. This is what people need to do to interact with that successfully and survive. So those lessons are embedded in it. The frame of rights tends to be oppositional. 
I have a right. I sue you. You have to pay me. You don't like me. You feel like you got the short end of the stick. That is the frame of rights discourse. If we go into indigenous epistemologies, many times it's a relational universe that comes with mutual responsibility. So you do Mm -hmm. have a responsibility to other people, to the natural environment. When you transgress that, you are going to suffer, but you cause your own suffering. I believe that is probably what is happening right now, but we are not accustomed to thinking that we are causing our own suffering. So I think the frame of value and responsibility gets toward mutuality and reciprocal obligations. In a sense, everybody benefits from that. Yeah, I think the key word there is the relationship. Our relationship is broken, or we don't think about it as a relationship. We think about rights. Rebecca, we've heard a lot recently about how the colonial mindset still pervades the way America was set up and how lands were were stolen and and, and still pervades kind of the, the patriarchy that we have today. What does it mean to decolonize the law? That is a great question, Greg, and I think that people don't agree on what it means to decolonize the law. But one of the things for Indigenous peoples would be to say the original law is still here. The people are still here on the land. The land is the law in many ways in this frame because it designates the responsibilities that we have to care for it and that it has to us as long as we do those things. To decolonize thinking is what we have to do. We still have our system of property law. Are we going to get rid of our system of property law? I don't think so. Are we going to get rid of our U.S. Constitution? I don't think so. So there will somehow always be a colonial element to our legal system. I think it would be very hard to decolonize the law, but we can decolonize our thinking. And that is what I think Lindsay is positing with this idea of a paradigm shift. We have had paradigm shifts in the history of this country, and this country is very young compared to many world civilizations of country. We're a baby country, and we've already had those days of reckoning where we had a paradigm shift. It is time for another paradigm shift because there is now an imperative with what is happening to our climate and our natural world, and it is our obligation to see that. To decolonize your thinking means to situate yourself in an interdependent universe, to recognize that we all rely on the forest. The the global forest is a hugely important asset to global survival and it doesn't matter that we're in this country and and you know Brazil is is over there with the Amazon that is our forest and that is what keeps us alive and similar the, the waters they're like the veins right they carry the life blood and and that delicate cycle we have to recognize our obligation to come together and regulate that in ways that are sustainable. That is what it would mean to decolonize the thinking about the planet that would afford a right to all of these ecosystems to flourish and to sustain us into the future. Lindsay, to to wrap this up, if you think about people on the political right who have been very astute and savvy about getting legal cases that they are aiming at the Supreme Court, whether it's something change that they want to enact, whether it's on gun legislation, uh, reproductive rights, whatever, that they're, they're very uh, savvy about aiming toward the Supreme Court. As you think about the rights of nature, if you could craft a path for one of these laws, whether it's Ohio, Pittsburgh, somewhere else, to go up to the Supreme Court, is that possible? Is that part of the strategy? What would that look like? We're giving judges right now the opportunity to to look at these ideas and say, you know what, we want to we want to change our thinking on this. Uh, whether it's about state interference with local democracy or rights of nature uh, or corporate rights, uh, I like to air quote rights. But you know, so far they're not biting, and so that probably means that there's a couple things going on. One, we don't have the political power. This is not about lawyers. This is about mass social movements emerging from the grassroots saying we need to change our system because it's leading us over a cliff that we cannot go off. And uh, without that, 
uh, it doesn't matter how silver-tongued the lawyers are before the U.S. Supreme Court. Uh, the court responds to popular opinion, and we need this this larger movement that says we can't continue to treat the Earth as property, and we must recognize that the Earth and its ecosystem its ecosystems have rights. And that's ultimately going to lead to a change in, in the legal system. You know, there's going to be some mechanisms. You know, does this happen by state constitutional amendments, and then you know those are affirmed as valid by the courts. But really what's going to make or break this is all of us working together to say that we have to make this change. Rebecca, a lot of the lands around the world uh, that are going to really determine whether we stabilize and heal the climate are in indigenous hands or, or um, should be. So as you think about expanding indigenous rights, what is your wish for um, that playing out? Uh, clearly, a lot of this is bigger. It will be longer than the Biden administration, but we do have a window now where a U.S. administration is centering on inclusion and justice. What's your hope for the future? That recent UN assessment that was done that showed that most of the world's biodiversity is located on the lands that are inhabited largely by indigenous and local communities. That was the proof that many of those ancestral ways of dealing with climate, with land, with water in a sustainable way, they work. And so when you saw the forest fires, for example, in Australia, the lands that were stewarded by indigenous peoples survived that and the other lands, you know, did not. So these are the lessons that we have. Now, how do we take that to a level of governance? I am very interested in, and I think that part of the paradigm shift is going to be to look at the human rights frame of self-determination is inclusive of environmental self-determination, right? It is the survival on those lands that ensures the integrity of the land, but the people's attachment to it, the stewardship of that is pivotal. So how do we ensure that Indigenous peoples are able to continue those traditional life ways? We need to, as a country, recognize those rights as embedded in human communities and also the lands that they steward. Thanks for so much for this philosophical conversation deep into the roots of our thinking and our legal system. Thank you, Greg. Thank you, Greg. On today's Climate One, we've been talking about the legal rights of the natural world with lawyers Lindsay Schroman Warren and Rebecca Tsosi and activist Carol Van Strom. Climate One's empowering conversations explore all aspects of the climate emergency. To hear more, subscribe to our podcast on Apple, Spotify, or wherever you get your pods. Talking about climate can be difficult, awkward, sometimes depressing, but it's critically important. Consider starting a conversation about climate this week. It really does help advance the climate conversation and lead people to action. Brad Marshland is our senior producer. Our audio editors and producers are Ariana Brocious and Austin Colon. The show is engineered by Arnav Gupta. Our team also includes Steve Fox, Kelly Pennington, and Tyler Reed. Dr. Gloria Duffy is CEO of the Commonwealth Club of California, the nonprofit and nonpartisan forum where our program originates. I'm Greg Dalton.